Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, Kobus Van Staten. Kobus, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Excellent. So we're going to have three topics today. We're going to start uh, right in Kobus's backyard in South Africa and talk about, you know, this whole issue of the RAND, which had a pretty tough week last week, and uh, a lot of that fueled by news of a Chinese economic slowdown and the whole kind of linking of not only South Africa's economy but also the continent as a whole to China. And as China's economy does begin to slow, what impact will that have uh, on various African economies? Uh, then we're going to talk about about uh, infrastructure. This has always been a very, very sensitive subject across Africa. On the one hand, a lot of African states are thrilled to be getting new roads, new hospitals, new, uh, new stadiums, new African Union headquarters, you name it. They're happy to get it. The bigger question, though, is what's the quality of that infrastructure? And also, what is the issue related to uh, whether that infrastructure is being able to be maintained? And is that infrastructure uh, going to be kept up? And, you know, we're going to take a look at, uh, at the Tazara Railway and see if that has any uh, guide for our future. So anyway, we will then uh, end on looking at Sudan and the terribly awkward position that China is in. So, okay, let's get started. Going back to the RAND this week, uh, Kobus, uh, give us a little update on, on what the performance of your currency did this week and why it had such a tough, uh, tough go at it. Well, this has been a bad week for the RAND. It's, it's, it had its biggest losses in six weeks. It fell for four days straight um, and then ended up a little bit, you know, kind of a little bit flat, but, you know, stable, apparently stable on Friday. Um, it seems to have lost about two, more than 2% of its value in a week. Um, and, you know, it, the, all of this was linked to, um, to new numbers coming out of China um, about uh, sowing you know, kind of, of economic growth and fears of, of uh, you know, perhaps uh, what they call a, a hard landing for the Chinese economy. Um, and it raised a lot of fears in South Africa that, that South Africa might be linking itself too closely to the Chinese economy. You know, Jacob Zuma has really endorsed the Chinese economic model in so many different ways, from the special economic zones, uh, also to, you know, questionable uh, visa practices with the Dalai Lama. And now, again, that criticism that we're hearing, we heard a lot this week, it's something I tweeted about quite a bit, on whether or not China and South Africa have linked too closely to the fact that uh, South Africa's economic and monetary policies may now be uh, linked, intimately linked, to, to what happens in China. The RAND, just, just kind of bring people up to date, closed down just 0.12% on Friday to 7.72 to the dollar, but you, they were on track before Friday to have the worst week in performance since December, uh, really based on those slowing numbers that we're seeing out of China, the Chinese uh, growth projections coming down between 5 and 7% for next year. Now, just one bit of cynicism to inject in here. You know, those projections, uh, you know, those are put out by, by the government. They are rarely accurate. They are rarely reflected in anything that actually happens at the end. So, you know, those are political numbers oftentimes not necessarily borne out in the, in the true economics. But it does raise the issue, Kobus, that you bring up, which is, you know, how tightly should Africa and snuggle with the big dragon. 
Yeah, I think in the case of South Africa, you know, kind of they seem to be snuggling ever closer because, uh, you know, kind of other numbers that came out recently was that South Africa's trade with all of its BRICS partners um, had increased by 108% um, from 2007, while its trade with the EU is down 12%. So, you know, kind of it's, you know, kind of coming up with the, the BRICS summit this week um, in New Delhi, um, you know, the South Africa seems to be, to be, you know, kind of coming closer and closer towards China. There's, there's um, talk in the South African press today that South Africa is going to be explicitly pushing the RMB, the Chinese currency, as, you know, as, as a new global trade currency. Um, so, you know, kind of it seems like it's this kind of historical shift, um, you know, and, but, but I'm not sure exactly where South Africa has been ending at the end of that shift. But, but what do you do if you're South African? Again, South Africa can really be any African country at this point. Um, you know, you want to diversify your export market. You want to break some of those traditional dependencies that have existed with Europe for, you know, centuries and the United States and haven't always been that productive at the end of the day. Now you, 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 you see these, you know, these new investors coming to town. They don't want to tell you how to run your life. And yet it poses real problems. I mean, I'm just wondering what does, you know, Joseph Kabila, Jacob Zuma, you know, Michael Sada do when they when they see this huge export market in this this country with a voracious appetite for everything that you have to sell? What do you do? Do you say no? Exactly, exactly. Particularly, you know, kind of in the case of South Africa, it becomes this, this you know, problem that South Africa has always had a kind of a, uh, you know, kind of outside regard for itself, or post-South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa, has had a kind of very big regard for its its international role without necessarily having the economy to back it up. So, um, you know, kind of, uh, the guy who, who coined the brick concept in the first place, Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs this week, was saying in an interview with Mail and Guardian, South African newspaper, that South Africa doesn't belong in the BRICS group. You know, it's too small and its its growth is too slow. Um, and, you know, kind of, you know, it's, it's only there because, because the BRICS countries are interested in using South Africa as a kind of entry into Africa. So it's South Africa's kind of weird situation in this grouping tends to become the whole of Africa situation. And, you know, I agree with you. It's like, you know, kind of, you know, Afrikaans, there's this, there's this expression: if it starts, if it starts raining porridge, you have to get a, grab a scoop, you know. Um, and it's that's kind of, I think, the, the the vibe in Africa at the moment. Like they're trying to get out of China what they can while it lasts. Yeah, I mean, I'm torn on this because on the one hand, going back to Jim O'Neill's comments, you know, we, we see nothing but good headlines coming out of, you know, on the African economy right now, one of the fastest growing parts of the world, new export markets, new ability for light industry manufacturing, all these wonderful things. And on the other hand, you're seeing that, you know, maybe it's still not ready for prime time yet, but that still doesn't go to what I think is the, the very legitimate question and really the bottom line that says to any of the critics who say, you know, that, that Zuma or anybody is tying themselves too closely to China, what are the alternatives? You, w w what do you do when you've got 40 to 50 percent of your population that still lives in dire poverty in South Africa? And correct me if I'm wrong there. Uh, when you've got, you know, lackluster economic growth and when you've got the fact that the Chinese have an ability to take their export markets and their natural resource extraction elsewhere, why would you walk away from that? I, I mean, again, I'm not saying that to to really kind of say you have to suck up to the Chinese. But at the end of the day, when you're responsible for feeding your people, do you pass that up? And so I don't know. Is anybody legitimately in South Africa raising that question? 
I don't really think so. Not not that I've seen at the moment. It's I think everyone in South Africa is kind of you know, I, I think they got a little bit spooked by the by the, the currency kind of fluctuations this week. Um but they're they're kind of sitting tight and waiting and seeing, you know, and um you know kind of there has been kind of talk that that, you know, kind of in the bigger scheme this this fluctuation wasn't wasn't that bad. But yeah, you know, kind of. Uh, so far, I don't think anyone is, is is proposing, you know, kind of another another kind of relationship with someone else. Particularly because Europe. I mean, Europe and America. You know, it's fifty years of Europe and America hasn't helped. How you know, as as, as primary trading partners, hasn't necessarily helped. Africa that much. No. Um, the other option would be, you know, just diversifying into the other kind of emerging markets, which I think African countries are doing anyway. You know, kind of um, India, South Korea, and so on. You know, they're all they're all relatively strong players in Africa as at the moment. They probably will become more so in the future. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's going to be something that we keep an eye on going into next week as well. And really, it's one thing to watch is now the linkages between the rand and Chinese economic performance as a whole. Uh, it is something to see that every time we see a negative indicator or even a positive indicator, for that matter, coming out of China to look at the various reactions on the African continent, particularly in South Africa, where I think you'll probably see it first, given the maturity of the market. Let's move over to Uganda right now. And uh, an article that came out last week in the Sunday Monitor, it was a commentary written by uh, Loanis John Gatsuyonis. I think I just hacked his name to pieces. Uh, but here's the headline of this commentary. No. China will not usher in the renaissance Africa dreams of. And one of his or hers, I, I apologize, but one of, one of the commentators' main objections to what China is doing in Africa across the continent is infrastructure. Now, we've always heard that infrastructure is so desperately needed, and they, the estimates now say there's you know something in the range of $90 billion of infrastructure that's actually needed in Africa today. The Chinese are providing just a small percentage of that. But what this commentator writes is that the quality of the infrastructure that's coming in is, uh, is in some cases, better... Maybe better if they didn't do anything. So let's let's kind of hit this very very sensitive subject, one that we you know anybody who's in the China Africa space has to encounter quite a bit, because there's a lot of criticism of the both the quantity and the quality of the infrastructure. Cobus, what did you think when you saw this uh, this headline, and what's your kind of top line view on this question of the qualitative factor of the infrastructure? You know, I mean, it, it it raised the piece raised more questions for me than it actually answered. You know, kind of because in the first place, I was I was wondering um, really which infrastructure the the author was comparing the new Chinese infrastructure to. I mean, which other country's infrastructure is more, is, is lasting better than the Chinese Fair infrastructure enough. in Africa? Um, you know, that's the one point. The other point is, is I think it's the bigger point is is you know once a country has provided infrastructure. The responsibility of, of looking after the infrastructure and, and up, you know, kind of upgrading it and, you know, making sure that, that it actually functions, you know, kind of well in the local economy becomes the recipient country's responsibility. Well, and, you know, kind of whose fault is this actually? And this goes to, you know, the dependency theory. And this is a dependency theory for those who aren't familiar is this whole idea that, you know, countries through aid and through colonialism and through kind of, you know, 
patriarchal policies become dependent on outside donor countries, when in fact it's the host country that needs to kind of assert more autonomy here. So I'm going to switch into my conservative Republican hat that I don't put on very often. <laughs> Just, <laughs> but it is there is some responsibility at the local level here um, that, you know, and, and I and I question just to bring up your point about who who are they comparing it to? The other question is what roads are they comparing it to? So, for example, in the DRC and in other you know in other places where the Chinese are literally building the first roads, the first hospitals, and whatnot in these, some of these communities, is it really better than nothing? So, I agree with you. The article for me left me kind of wondering. It did bring up some good points, though, in the sense of you know is the technology transfer happening? Is the skills transfer happening? I think those are very very important questions. I do like the trend that I'm seeing coming out of Ethiopia, out of Zambia, out of Ghana. This is something we talked about last week, where African states are being a little more assertive uh, in their negotiations with the Chinese, and I hope they continue that. And I hope part of that is to do some skills transfer so that local entities and local staffs can better care for that infrastructure that's maintained. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of, I think, you know, one of, one of the... the the examples that he raised was the Tazara, uh, um, you know, rail line um, in Tanzania, Tanzania and Zambia, um, you know, which is obviously the original classic big Chinese infrastructure investment, which have happened, you know, kind of due to, um, you know, kind of, you know, in the Mao era, kind of um, due to the work of Zhao Enlai. And, um, you know, now, you know, he, he said yes, but now the Tazara, um, you know, kind of rail line is falling apart. And, and the sweet China, um, you know, kind of announced that they're going to be sinking $66 million into refurbishing of the Tazara line. Um, but then it turned out that the Tazara company, the actual railway company, is $700 million in, you know, in debt, mostly due to unpaid pensions and unpaid worker benefits. So I'm like, again, you know, kind of, is, is, who, who's really supposed to be paying for that? And, you know, kind of why is something that, that essentially dates from decades ago, why is it still seen as China's responsibility? Yeah, and I think that's such a unique case because of the history of that event, that, that, that project the politics of that project. I mean, that's going all the way back to the Mao era. So I'm not so sure if that's really the best example. I mean, for example, had he or she, again, not sure which, uh, brought up, you know, the new expansion of the Kenyatta International Airport in Nairobi, that would have been, to me, a much more interesting example, which is, you know, that is contemporary. It's it's practical. It really does beg the question of whether Kenyans and, you know, and whether the airport authority will actually be able to keep that up. Uh, but I want to bring up an anecdote that was brought up by one of my Congolese staff when I lived in Kinshasa, and I said, what are you going to do when the Chinese one day just pack up and leave? Who's going to maintain these roads? Who's going to maintain, you know, the airport construction and the hospitals and whatnot? And this older gentleman, he looked at me in the eyes, and he kind of shook his head, and he said, Eric, they're not leaving. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of observation from a local's perspective, too, is that unlike the, the donor relationships of the past, where the Americans and the Europeans and who whatnot came, built something, and then left, uh, we may be in a different situation now where the Chinese build something and they actually may be around to maintain it as well. So that problem may actually answer itself. It's a controversial question, though. 
Yes, yes. And I mean, that that casts a bit of a different light on, on issues like skills transfer, you know, kind of because, you know, um, skills transfer in for particular projects is one thing. But in, in the case of, of maintaining large scale infrastructure, what one frequently needs is less particular skills being transferred than more the kind of raising up of a new generation of, of engineers and other technicians, you know, in order to, to, to keep all of these things running. Um, so if the Chinese aren't leaving, then does that mean that they're going to be doing that as well for the Africans? And what what is actually what you know what becomes the Africans' role in that in that scenario? Well, it's one of the things that you hear a lot when you talk to Chinese project managers and engineers in uh, anywhere across the continent is that why are you using Chinese labor and Chinese designers and Chinese architects to build these projects and not local? And and, and they're in a very precarious position, one that I don't think is very well understood. Uh, on the one hand, people will they'll say, you know, listen, we are under such tight deadlines and cost constraints to get these done imposed by the local government. So take, for example, the Saint-Chantier that was done in Kinshasa. You know, the dates for that were politically fixed by Kambila. Uh, this was the same situation in Algeria as well, where, you know, massive housing was actually created, but that housing was done to time with the elections. And so the Chinese had to complete these infrastructure projects in accordance with domestic political cycles. And so in order for them to do that at the cost constraints that they were given, both by the host country and by uh, the, the parameters of the project, it was cheaper and more efficient for them to bring in their own labor. Uh, rather than to source locally when they don't have the knowledge locally to do that. So I think that's an, another kind of wrinkle in all of this is that it's not simply being done in a colonial type of way. And I think that's a very, very big misunderstanding in this is that there are there is a Chinese perspective in all of this that isn't actually making itself into the into the news. I think so. There's also, you know, kind of in South Africa has an interesting kind of situation relating to this at the moment. Um, there's a there's a big highway uh, between Pretoria and Johannesburg, which is which is really a, you know a, a very important economic vein, and now um, the government is setting up polling stations all along that highway, um, you know, in order to to kind of to get some kind of maintenance, you know, kind of money to maintain that that highway, and South Africans are furious, um, you know, kind of, and I think the. You know, kind of the culture of 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 realizing that that infrastructure is in, inherently fragile and needs to be constantly maintained and updated, and someone has to pay for that. That isn't not necessarily a culture that is particularly strong in Africa at the moment. Well, because there really hasn't been a legacy of strong infrastructure on the continent, and uh, exactly. So, exactly. you know, but are you saying that South Africans are furious because they've never been in the habit of paying for it? It's always been something that's been paid for by the federal government or by donors, it's, or you know, why and and. What's the link between with that and the Chinese? Well, okay, this is this is this is a wider point, more more particularly in you know kind of in, in relation to infrastructure maintenance culture. This isn't this Got project it. wasn't by the Chinese. Okay, the, I think the issue is that simply that South Africans are going to be built simply for for driving on that road, and that that is a whole that turned into a, a, a kind of a hot potato, political hot potato. In yeah, South well, that makes sense. Um, so the, the the takeaway from this, uh, you know, my point is, uh, you know, this this is one of the most sensitive issues out there when you talk about the Chinese. 
China-Africa relationship is not only the creation of the infrastructure, but of course the maintenance of it and the quality. Um, I do feel that the, the kind of infrastructure that the Chinese are building is so vital. Um, you know, again, roads in Angola, demining activities in Angola and whatnot, places that, that haven't had any type of infrastructure for at least a generation are starting now to get some. Um, in some places, I think that, you know, and you go through the, the USAID process and the, the, the traditional EU donor process, and it's just a freaking nightmare. And I see the Chinese coming in and just saying, let's get some stuff done. I don't want to sound like an apologist for the Chinese, though, because I think that, you know, some of the quality issues are absolutely legitimate. Um, and they also have to be sensitive to this issue of the perception of the labor issue. And it, again, we've talked about this on past podcasts, how entirely tone deaf the Chinese are when it comes to public relations and communications. Um, and that's one area that I think that they, uh, they could do a much, much better job. Okay, so let's move on now to our final topic, one that uh, Cobus actually, uh, you know, we, we keep coming back to over and over and over again, and in part because I think it's one of the most interesting things happening on the continent today, and of course that is China stuck between just two awful, awful players in Sudan. And uh, tell us a little bit about what's, what's going on this week. Well, Al, you know, the reason for us to, to return to this issue um, this week is that China recently announced that, or rather kind of um, Sudan's, North Sudan's um, president, um, um, al-Bashir, so announced that China has cancelled a massive loan to extend electricity in the Nile River state. Um, the reason the Chinese cancelled it um, was that it was a, a oil for loans deal, um, which is the kind of deal that, that the Chinese obviously set up with a lot of African countries countries, the resources for money kind of deal. Um, and, uh, you know, and the oil isn't forthcoming because the South Sudanese shut down the oil production and the, the you know, kind of deal because of a, because of a big fight with, with uh, Khartoum about uh, how much, you know, how much the South Sudanese should pay to use the Chinese constructed pipeline that, that takes the oil to the, to the harbor in, in Sudan. Um, so the, there is no oil at the right at the moment to pay for the electricity. And uh, so the Chinese cancelled the deal. Well, and that was that was impressive on its own. Let's just step back and give a little bit of context. Uh, Sudan is the is China's second largest source of oil out of Africa, providing about five percent of China's overall oil. So while five percent doesn't seem like a lot, it, it's it's a it's a remarkably high amount, especially now that the Chinese are, are diminishing their their supply from Iran. Um, they've invested about what some estimates, according to the Washington Post, some twenty billion dollars into Sudan. Uh, Sudan presented a real foreign policy challenge for, for China when, the South, when South Sudan broke away and Juba kind of created a new country. And of course, you know, anytime we get to the issue of separatism and of dividing countries and whatnot, that's just the Chinese freaking hate that. So that's twice I've used the word freaking in this podcast. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it presents a number of different challenges in terms of, you know, the, the foundation of Chinese foreign policy in terms of its interventionists, uh, this idea of splitting up countries countries peacefully, which is something they don't like very much, the source of oil, and also this idea that China became, for the first time that I knew, um, a, a, a true intermediary on the international stage, you know, called in to kind of broker a peace deal between the two sides, while rebels in South Sudan had been kidnapping uh, oil workers and other construction workers uh, from China. So all of that kind of mixed together. Now we're faced with an issue where the fact is that the Chinese, uh, you know, if they can't get the oil out of Sudan, do they still have a friend in Khartoum? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, kind of that, that I think is a very good question. I, you know, it's difficult to say 
whether this marks the the beginning of a decline in in kind of Beijing Khartoum relations. Um, the you know the Sudan has been saying that they are planning to move into into gold exploration, um, and there was this kind of oblique article that appeared this week uh, saying that that creditors, quote unquote, um, not know, not naming which creditors, have been asking um, Su- Sudan for for um, gold mining related collateral, um, you know, kind of to back up loans. So I mean that might be an interesting clue to see where it's going, but um, you know, it seems yeah, hard to I believe that gold. There's enough gold there to replace as much oil as they have. I mean. That, exactly. that does seem kind of sketchy, you know. But now they're facing problems also on the Juba side of the border on the, on this, in South Sudan where the South Sudanese are threatening to cut off all of China's uh, – those connections, those vital connections to export out to Sudan uh, unless the South Sudanese kind of hear some, some, some – I don't know, some kind of you know, proclamation of loyalty to South Sudan, some kind of assurance that the Chinese are actually on the South Sudanese side of things. Now, this comes just as CNPC, the China National Petroleum Corporation, has found a huge discovery. And this is something you brought to our attention a couple weeks ago, right on the border. And this was, and also the kind of oil that they discovered, according to this article a couple of weeks ago, is that perfect kind of light, sweet crude. So it's a good find. So how do you get it out of South Sudan if the Chinese or if the South Sudanese are threatening now to evict the Chinese, and of course they already have taken their first casualty, evicting, expelling actually a uh, an ethnically Chinese, not a national Chinese, of I think it was Petrobar, a Malaysian oil company that was expelled. So they seem to be you know playing hardball there in South Sudan. I have to, and in this case, I'm probably putting up my kind of putting on my you know kind of conservative hat. But doesn't it strike you that? That the word for for me anyway, the word for the the way that South Sudan is is behaving, is coming down to actually being childish. You know, um, the you know oil makes up ninety eight percent of South Sudan's economy. How is it possible for them to to shut it down? You know, kind of where's the kind of regard for their own citizens in the first place? In the second place, I mean, the issue of course is that unlike other African countries where China gets oil from. You know, kind of in 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 Sudan, they're pumping the oil through Chinese-built infrastructure. You know, kind of the Chinese are basically pumping the oil. Chinese companies are pumping the oil, and then you know, kind of, and then it gets sent to China. So, I mean, isn't this just suicidal from well, the, from the South the, Sudanese perspective? Well, if the if you talk to the South Sudanese, they will tell you that if the Chinese don't play ball by their rules, they're going to talk to U.S. and European, you know, of the major the European majors there who may play yeah. by their rules. And you know, oil's that kind of you know that kind of product that. You know, people will lie, cheat, and steal. And, you know, so what that the Chinese built the infrastructure? If you don't want to, you know, do what I tell you to do, I'm going to go talk to Total in France. I'll talk to, you know, uh, you, you know, the Italian companies. I'll talk to Exxon, whoever. And they'd be more than willing to come in if they can. Now, the bigger problem for South Sudan is at this point in time, they have no actual way of getting that oil out of the country except via Sudan. So the next big step for South Sudan is to build a pipeline. I think they were going to build it out through uh, Kenya, uh, you, you know, to the coast, to that coast. And that way they, they break their dependence on, on Sudan. 
I suspect at that point, and this is just my amateur, you know, my crystal ball here, is that the, the North Sudanese or the Sudanese are really going to do everything in their power to make sure that pipeline doesn't get built. Because once that dependence gone, then you just have no reason to have any kind of stability uh, between the two countries. Because the Sudanese, once they realize that the South Sudanese don't need them anymore, and all that oil is sitting in South Sudan, then they're just going to take the gloves off. And, and, and uh, I think we'll see a, a you know, resumption of massive, massive violence between the two countries. Yeah. Do you foresee that China's at some stage going to get Sudan fatigue? Um, or do you think they're, they're kind of going to find a way of trying to actually engage even more in trying to, to create stability? It's very easy to say they'll get Sudan fatigue, but $20 billion, if that number is in fact correct, is a lot of money. Uh, 5% of their overall oil is a lot of their oil. Um, they've got a lot invested in Sudan, and they, I think they have to find a way or try their best to make this work. I, I don't see them kind of picking, picking themselves up and just leaving that quickly. Um, I think it does bolster, if you're sitting in Luanda right now in Angola, you're feeling very good about things. Angola, of course, being the largest provider of African oil to to China. Um, so this may actually, they may wean themselves off of Sudanese oil or reduce the exposure and the risk that they have. Um, but it goes to, and this is a theme we brought up a couple weeks ago, of this overall volatility fatigue. I think that there is indication that the Chinese are getting kind of exhausted from, you know, what's happening in, in the DRC, in Sudan, in, you know, some of these places where, uh, you, you know, Egypt is another one where their, their workers have been kidnapped. And I think they are going to kind of look for safe harbors and some shelter a little bit for some stability. So that plays well to Zambia, Ghana, Tanzania, uh, Angola, even to some extent South Africa. Uh, all of those play well. So um, any final thoughts on Sudan? No, I mean, it's just interesting. Um, Xiao um, Yuhua, um, is, a, is a professor at Zhejiang um, National University, was, was quoted by The Guardian saying that China will maintain its, its traditional non-intervention policy, but there are going to be putting more emphasis in the future on creating stability and on good governance. So it's interesting, China might be heading in the, you know, in the old kind of European, you know, Anglo-American kind of governance, uh, you know, direction. It's, it'll be interesting to see. Irony is not, in fact, dead after all. And if you want to see that article that Kobus referred to earlier about the agricultural project that was cancelled, it's in the Sudan Tribune at uh, sudantribune.com uh, from uh, Sunday, March 11th. So that's from uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, so that'll do it, of course, for this week's edition of the China Africa podcast. Uh, Kobus, if they want to find you, all of our millions and millions of listeners want to find you on Twitter, where can they go? I am um, at Stadenesque, that, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E, and I'm, I'm trying to, quote, to, to tweet a few kind of, uh, you know, China-Africa-related uh, headlines through, the, through each day. Nice. Okay. Well, I'm tweeting about four to five times now a day of uh, what I think are the top stories of the day on China-Africa. So that's at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. E -O -L -A -N -D -E -R. And of course, you can find our podcast uh, free on iTunes. Just look for the... Uh, China Africa podcast, as well as right on the ChinaAfricaProject.com website. Uh, so that'll do it for this edition. We will be back again next week with another discussion on China Africa issues. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.